Um, I've got quite a bit of ground to cover. I know people will be trickling in. That's okay. But I would love to conclude the Lord's Supper today, and there's a lot of things to discuss. I'm going to be out of the teaching role, both in the pulpit and Sunday school, over the next two weeks as we head out to uh, Cancun, a little bit of a vacation for anniversary. And uh, so I would love to get through this. And so I have two videos lined up, both very good videos um, lined up in the next two Sunday schools. One is how we got, how Reformed Baptists, like what that means and how we got there coming out of the, from really the first couple hundred years of church history all the way up to Charles Spurgeon's 1689 Confession. And then a primer on the so-called doctrines of grace or Calvinism. Um, and we will be unpacking the doctrines of grace, what those are from the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in our next series. And so those two, so it would be great for me to conclude today, let you all watch those two things the next two weeks, and then we can dive right back in to uh, the so-called TULIP, although there are better acronyms. There are, there are some better designations than some of those things. So anyways, let's, uh, let's pray together and let's get into it. God, we're thankful to be together uh, on this chilly day, discuss uh, and learn more about the Lord's Supper, this ordinance that you've ordained for the church. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, and that in asking some of these questions and thinking about some of these things, that it would spur us on to enjoy the Lord's Supper more, to have a better um, focus and attention uh, as we partake of it that it would have more significance and meaning for us, that we would think about it clearly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'll recall last time, I laid out the four main views on the Lord's Supper. And uh, so I want to conclude that discussion with some evaluation. I laid out, just, just for those of you who may not have been here, the Roman Catholic position, which eventually was called transubstantiation, where the elements... Priest performs a miracle, and the and the bread and the wine turn into the physical body and blood of Jesus, and there's a real sacrifice that happens there. The um, the Lutheran view, where Christ is in around, kind of, it is it was called consubstantiation later, but that's actually not the best designation for it. That the, the physical body and blood of Jesus were present there with the blood, uh, I'm sorry, with the bread and the wine, but wasn't that one transformed into another? And, and Luther, you know, used analogies like, well, the kind of like an iron uh, uh, that has been stuck into the fire, that, and then the kind of the fire is in the iron, but they're they're both there together. It's not that one replaced the other, something like that. Then you had the uh, the so-called Reformed view, and I said that's a little bit of a misnomer because the Reformed tradition has a wide range of views within it, but this was the so-called spiritual presence view, and Calvin's view is the strongest version of that, where he said in the Lord's Supper we are spiritually brought close to the physical body of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, he's not clear about how that happens, but it's not as though Christ is just spiritually present as the second person of the Trinity. It's that somehow heaven and earth, the chasm between them, are kind of pressed together where we are brought up to Christ in some bizarre way or he is brought down to us. The Westminster Confession of Faith has a much more, I would say, sober-minded um, understanding of that. And then finally, Zwingli's view, which has been called the memorial view, which is also a misnomer because he did think there was more going on than simply... Uh, 
remembering, but essentially that the elements represent the body and blood of Jesus and that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember the sacrifice uh, of Christ, among other things, but that there wasn't a heightened metaphysical presence of God, for example, uh, in the elements of the table. Those are the four views. So in evaluation, let me just say a couple things. Uh, nowhere does the New Testament speak of the Lord's Supper as a sign, as a seal, or as a means of grace, despite the conceptual presence of such elements properly understood. Is the Lord's Supper a means of grace? Yeah, sure it is. Of course it is. Uh, is the Lord's Supper a sign? Yes. Is it a seal? Perhaps, depending on kind of what you mean by that. But these elements, but the note, but it's it's it should be. It should be pointed out that the New Testament nowhere specifically says that the Lord's Supper is these things. And that's important because if you have all these categories and other, and, and, and I'm, I'm probably speaking to someone who's actually not in the room here, but if you have all these categories like what a sign is and what a seal is, and you have this theology built up and then you say, oh, look, the Lord's Supper is a seal. Then all of a sudden now you have imbued it with meaning that the New Testament doesn't actually give to it. You've imported meaning into the Supper that isn't there, but properly understood, certainly we could say these things about the Lord's Supper. Um, as much as a great deal of the tradition coming out of Roman Catholicism has desperately sought to find a heightened metaphysical presence of Christ in the Supper, the textual evidence for such a conclusion is sorely lacking. So while Christ is certainly present in his gathered with the gathered body, which is the context of the meal, and thus he is truly present, but not in a way that requires us being taken to heavenly realms or Christ being brought down to us. Okay, I would say that again, when, when you're asking, and when you look at the literature here, it is very clear. You ask for the proof text for these things, and like where, are we, where do you see this in the scripture? And it's either grasping at straws or some kind of wild allegory, or more often or not, it's just, this is just tradition. This is just what kind of the church has believed. Okay? Which is fine, but just because the church has believed it, uh, and I say the church, certainly not the whole church, um, as I just mentioned, Zwingli's view. But Pia, you know, they have believed this, and this has antiquity and all the rest. No, that just doesn't mean it's right. Uh, the New Testament nowhere calls us to look to the Lord's Supper directly for our hope, contrary to what some authors say. It calls us to look to Christ as our great high priest, who has died, risen, and is reigning, and the supper serves to bring these elements to mind. So when we say the supper is a means of grace, uh, we are not saying that the, the supper is, should be the object of your hope. It should be what the supper represents. That is Christ crucified and risen being the object of the hope. I didn't put it in here, but Martin Luther has a quote where he said, if someone were to deny him the Lord's Supper, um, if, if someone were to withhold the Lord's Supper from him, that he would hang himself like Judas. That's how strongly he had to have the Lord's Supper. I would kill myself if, if, a, if someone withheld that from me or whatever the case may be. And I, what I'm suggesting, and that would be to look at the Lord's Supper in placing a little bit, well, not, not a little bit, having a little bit greater emphasis on the Lord's Supper than what uh, in, in terms of where my hope is, in terms of my trust is, in terms of kind of what it is going to, in one sense, do for me. And of course, the reason Luther had that is because of his own view of the supper. I mean, if you take his view of the Lord's Supper, kind of that, that makes sense, I, I, I would say. But I want to suggest that we're never 
the New Testament never calls us to look directly at the Lord's Supper for hope. It's to look at Christ, and that's what the Supper points us toward. Finally, the only sacrifice and forgiveness of sins present in the Lord's Supper are the past sacrifice of Christ in his present disposition of intercession towards repentant believers looking to him in faith. And so uh, certainly the, 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 for these reasons, the vast majority of Protestants have taken the position that is most similar to Zwingli regarding the elements. Uh, again, I said it's often called the memorial view, which is, a, I think, a misnomer. Joseph Bromley talks about this when he's writing about Zwingli, an Anglican theologian. He said, um, Zwingli does not dispute that Christ is truly present in the supper. What he disputes is that he is present substantially, present in the substance of his flesh and blood, present after his human nature. He had no wish to deny the presence of Christ altogether, and the reality of the spiritual presence of Christ involves something far more than bare memorialism. The supper cannot be merely a commemorative rite, when the one commemorated is himself present and active among those who keep the feast. That's a really good point. I mean, everyone here has been to a memorial service before, okay? Usually not happy times in one sense. No matter, it's funny, people are, this is a celebration of life. And every, why is everyone crying? No, I understand. It's good. It's just, but it's still, nevertheless, you are remembering someone and, and, and someone has passed away. But imagine you had a memorial service, but the person who's being memorialized is in the front row. That would be weird, wouldn't it? You'd be like, what? It, this is, it can't be just mere memorialism there. This, that's, the point, that's the point he's making here. He's like, Christ is present with his people. Christ is present in a real way. He doesn't have to be present in his physical body. Christ is present. And so if Christ is present, when he is memorialized, it can't just be bare memorialism, like a memorial service. We're remembering someone who is gone. No, it's more like we are remembering someone who is with us. And so that's not bare memorialism, okay? So uh, that's what Zwingli wanted to suggest, and that's what I want to suggest. And so what I want to do that is through a quadruplicate perspective on the celebrating the Lord's Supper here. Quadruplicate just meaning fourfold. Let me suggest four horizons in which we can think about celebrating the Lord's Supper. The first is looking backward. It's the most obvious we are looking backward to the sac. This is going to be four looks, four directions you're going to look. If you want to remember it that way. We look backwards to the sacrifice of Christ. We understand what the Passover was. We understand that he is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. We understand his spilled blood is the blood of the new covenant. We understand that this is the cup of the new covenant in his blood when we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we look at uh, Christ's sacrifice, and we remember who he was, what he did, why he did it. First look, looking backwards. The second is looking in, and we're going to talk about this one a little bit more down in 1 Corinthians 11, which is one of those texts that figures into the discussion here, but it has not so much in the actual theology of the elements. That's why we haven't talked about it yet, but in some of these practical questions about celebrating that we're about to get to, um, there, is an there is an element of partaking worthily. Now, certainly I think that some pastors have really juiced this one for more than what the text actually uh, allows you to juice it for. You know, like, oh, really, really search for every sin that you've ever, and, and kind of go on the groveling internal mission um, to to pick your soul apart or something like that. That is not the con, and that's where it comes from, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, but that's not, that, we're going to say that's not the context exactly of 1 Corinthians 11. There is something that has to be done. 
There is something that has to be done appropriately. But in the context of 1 Corinthians 11 and what was happening there at Corinth, it wasn't that people weren't counting up you know, enough sins or something before they took the Lord's Supper inside their head. That, that, that wasn't it. It's that they were partaking of the supper in an unworthy manner. And so you might have a general application, which I do think is good, uh, in, in terms of looking within. Am I in unrepentant sin? A- am I, or am I, am I looking faithfully to Christ? Are there things that I do need to ask forgiveness for as I look at, look one, is looking backwards, Christ died for forgiveness. Do I need to ask forgiveness so that I can be covered by his blood? And that's why I said at the, in the last point on the last slide that the only forgiveness of sins in the Lord's Supper or uh, is uh, for those who are repentantly looking to Jesus. It does not communicate forgiveness of sin uh, just in light of uh, 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 taking the elements, like in the like in the Catholic view, and in some uncautious places in the Lutheran view. So looking backwards, we're looking within, and and we're going to look around in community slash identity. You'll recall last time I made a point that I'm going to come back to about the incredible family nature of the Lord's Supper. Jesus does something, for those of you who are not here, it's worth, it's worth me repeating. Jesus does something incredible in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was a family meal. It was a meal that you would be at home with your family, and the head of the home would be responsible for explaining the elements of the meal and the history of Israel and kind of administering kind of running point on, on the evening, taking that Passover meal. Uh, again, it was not something that you did by yourself under a tree. It was something that you did with your family. And yet, you have something very interesting. You have Jesus celebrating the Lord's Supper. He's not with his family at all. And in fact, all of the men have been called away from their families. Peter, you remember, is married. Jesus is, I mean, no one, we, we, we all, we're almost waiting for someone to raise their hand and be like, oh man, I'd really like to celebrate this supper, Jesus, but we got to go celebrate with our families. He's like, no. Who are my brothers and sisters? Who, who, who is the family? Jesus is redefining what family is in this meal. This is a new covenant meal for a new covenant people. And we've been, we've been wait, we've, when I've already seen precursors of that in the ministry of Jesus where he's doing you know, he's healing people. Like, hey, Jesus, your family's out here. Your, your family's out here. And he's like, uh, who, who's, my, who's my mother and brother and sisters? Okay. It's a little bit different than what everyone's thinking, isn't it? So when Jesus, this would have been, this is, would have been, uh, this would have been very odd for people to not, for these men especially, to not be with their families, whether they were leading it themselves, in the case perhaps of Peter, would be having, it could be an extended family thing, whether you were these other men, we don't know necessarily who were married past past him, past Peter, that is, but they would be celebrating in the context of some family. It is. Okay. So uh, looking around, community and identity. This is a meal that is celebrated in community. And so the kind of the evangelical idea of when in corporate worship, and I know you've heard someone say, just kind of, this is especially, man, just get alone in the room with God. You know, just you. Just block, block out everyone else and just be there. It's like, how do you think that makes the person next to you feel? 
They're like, this, is a, this isn't, you know, corporate worship is not individual worship. It's not private worship with just more people. It's a different thing. The Lord's Supper is a community meal. Jesus and the Lord's Supper, in terms of how it progresses, redefines what community and not family particularly is going to look like and redefines identity in Christ as opposed to national identity um, or uh, mere gene- uh, uh, family descent in terms of redefining what the family is. So we're looking around. When I the Lord's Supper, it's not just a I'm morbidly introspecting and it's just it's this individualistic thing I'm doing. Uh, why other people have to be, you know, happen to be sitting next to me. No, this is a community meal. And then finally, the fourth look is looking ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus even says, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine again until I, I drink it with you again in the kingdom. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 19. It is this wedding feast. It is this wedding supper that finally, uh, that finally has come. And that the Lord's Supper points us forward too, because it's not just that we remember the sacrifice of Christ, but Christ, in fact, rose from the dead, which is what Easter Sunday testifies to, and looks forward to a resurrection of believers and a restoration of all things when um, the bride uh, marries the bridegroom, the church uh, moves forward with Christ. And so between looking backwards, looking within, looking around, and looking ahead, I think we have Four good perspectives, four things that you can even perhaps go through in your own mind as you take the Lord's Supper. It's certainly been helpful to me. I think it's theologically sound and practically helpful in terms of filling out contour in the Lord's Supper more than just bare remembrance, bare memorialism, something like that. Um, and because these things, listen, here's the, here's the thing. I think that what we're going to see is, is that we see a pattern of regularly taking the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. And uh, it seems, it seems, it doesn't say exactly why, but it seems obvious enough that these things right here, th- these are things that we need to constantly be taking inventory of in our own soul, and we need our minds recalibrated on a regular basis. Um, yeah, in fact, you might even say that in some sense, the Lord's Supper focuses as a Christian recalibration. Uh, we bring, in, in the story of redemption, we bring certain burdens. We bring, we bring distorted thoughts. We, we, we bring our, uh, uh, we, we bring certain, hmm, I'm trying to be careful about how I say it. We, we, we have misplaced priorities that we bring. Uh, that need to be recalibrated. We are we tend to be forgetful people in terms of what Christ has done for us and near sight. So the, the Lord's Supper, uh, if we, it's not like this something that if we just did once, we would never need recalibration again, right? So what I'm suggesting is the reason for the pattern that I think we're going to see is that our hearts and souls need recalibration and refreshment. And God has generously and graciously provided that among in, uh, among other ways through the Lord through the Lord's Supper. All right, any questions about either the, the caveats I made or celebrating the supper before I go through the shotgun list of what ifs or what abouts? Any questions? Okay, so now, how much time do I have? Okay, I think I can do this. All right, I'm going to try to go through responsibly, but as quickly as I can, this list of questions about the Lord's Supper.
They always come up if you're going to, in the context of the local church. So we've talked about the questions about the elements themselves. But what you'll find when you turn to the pages of the New Testament, the terms like the how and the what and the frequency and the which element, there's a, it just doesn't say very much. And we're not taking the Lord's Supper in the same context, like in someone's home, uh, that they were. I mean, there are so many different, there is so much space culturally and conceptually from, from just the 21st, 21st century America and the first century that it is simply bound to be different. And so we come to the text going, well, what, what, how exactly can we celebrate the supper? Or who's supposed to say what? Or what's the person's officiating it supposed to say? And that, just they're, they're, the scripture just doesn't say exactly about hardly any of those things. And so, uh, or at least it doesn't say them explicitly. So the, so the task, my task here is to take what uh, the theology of the supper is, a larger theology of the local church, and combine that with what I hope to be some practical wisdom to give answers to some of these questions. Okay? So without further ado, and anyone is, is, is free, just please uh, uh, ask a question at any point in time. Raise your hand, and, and I'm happy to pause and take your question, because I'm sure I didn't include all the questions. And I'm sure I don't have answers to all the questions. So my answer to you might be, I don't know, that's a good question. But I'll, I'll do my best. Okay, the first one is, is, quite, is, is by far the most straightforward. Who can partake? The overwhelming consensus coming out of the Protestant Reformation is that baptized Christians walking faithfully with, in good standing with the church, um, not to be confused with sin, sinlessness and not to be confused with a certain level of maturity. That's not it. Okay, Baptized Christians walking faithfully are the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I will mention this, though. When you, look to the, when you look to Scripture for baptism being required theologically to take the Lord's Supper, it's just not there. It's not there. Um, I do think it is a, it's, it's been adopted because it's ecclesiologically pragmatic. I mean, someone's going to say, uh, yeah, I want to follow Jesus and take the Lord's Supper. Like, oh, you get baptized. Well, no, I'm not, I don't want to get baptized. Like, hmm. Well, then why would you take the Lord's Supper? That's kind of how it progressed. Uh, and, a, and certainly in the first century where there wasn't this huge, this huge time gap that we often have between someone repenting and believing the gospel and, and baptism. Um, so I would say that even though that this is, I think this is wise, if, if, you're, if you're that person like me, and I don't mind saying it, who, who likes to see it in the text, like, okay, well, just I understand that makes sense. Like it fits, like it's coherent, understood, get it. But like, is that a, is that a must or like a generality or a best practice? You're, you're, it's just not there. Um, by the way, I'll just say this: as a Baptist, yes, sir. What's your membership deal requirement for baptism? So we are going to, we are. Do you mean church membership in in a particular church? So, yeah, good question. So, so we. We, we explicitly had in our guarding of the table, our Lord's Supper liturgy until about eight or so months ago, that the Lord's Supper was to be taken by those who are Christians, who are walking in repentance and were pursuing or members of a local church. Not necessarily our local church, but a member's local church. But then it was pointed out to us that, the, uh, that the, being a member of a local church is actually subsumed under living in accordance with the commands of Scripture. And so, yes, certainly, uh, but that would also include a whole host of other things. So certainly, um, uh, 
you know, certainly we would want someone to be obedient to scripture and we understand that to be plugging into a local church. We don't think there are isolated Christians. However, someone could be uh, transitioning churches. Someone could be searching for a local church they couldn't find. And in that case, what we see here is that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus redraws the lines of family, but the family identity is the family of Christ, united to Christ. It's not in a particular assembly there in Jerusalem. So I would say that more fundamentally, uh, uh, that I would uh, uh, adopt something that's called close communion, close communion, which would, instead of closed, uh, Closed communion. Close communion. So those who have believed the gospel, who, who share a, a, a Christ-centered biblical theology, who are living in faithfulness, living lives of fruitful repentance in the Lord Jesus, and are therefore part of the family. And that's why we start the liturgy now. That's part of it. This is a meal for the. This is a family meal. The family of God is not just merely a particular local expression, but it's those who are united to Christ. And so. Um, we would we want people who are united to Christ, who are living in accordance with the um, mandates of Scripture, pursuing Jesus. And if someone can do that, um, then I think it's difficult to preclude them from the Lord's Supper on the basis of the New Testament. I think again, there, again, there are well, what if what if this, what if this? And I think there are good, you know, or there are good, there are plausible, um, maybe practical objections there. But if we're just wanting to see, like, what does this say before we do it? I, don't, I, I think you see that those who are legitimately, those who are Christians who are walking in repentance and faith, bearing fruit of righteousness, can certainly take the Lord's Supper. Um, okay, let me mention this as well. On the Baptist view of baptism, to suggest that unbelievers, unbelievers, excuse me, that was terrible given what I'm about to say. That's... I wish I could delete that. Anyways, I didn't. That's, I, it came out. <laughs> On the baptism required for Lord's Supper view, that would mean that those who are, you know, were baptized only as infants, like a lot of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, couldn't take the Lord's Supper. And in fact, some of you know who Ligon Duncan is, and some of you know who Mark Dever is. Ligon Duncan is the president of Reformed Baptist, uh, Reformed Baptist um, uh, Reformed uh, Theological Seminary in uh, Jackson, is he down in Jackson, and uh, Presbyterian PCA guy, and then Mark Dever, of course, uh, Reformed Baptist over in Capitol Hill, head of Nine Marks Ministries. They're great friends, but when Ligon Duncan goes to preach at Mark Dever's church, he preaches, sits down, and does not take the Lord's Supper because Mark Dever won't let him, and he doesn't have a problem with it. Mark Dever says all, all baptized Christians can take the Lord's Supper here, and that's not you. And he said, "Hey, I like a Baptist." With I mean, he, and, and Ligon Duncan is is in print saying, "Hey, I like a Baptist who believes his theology." I mean, he doesn't mind it. It's not a personal thing, uh, but you might think it's. I mean, my 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 view because I think the family that that gets uh, that redefined is the family of God and not a particular local church. Um, would be that I'm 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 certainly okay with the Presbyterian brother or sister taking the Lord's Supper. Okay, um, second question: uh, How or where should the supper be taken? So, um, turn with me to Acts chapter twenty if you have your copy of the scripture. I'm just going to be here real briefly, then switch over. How or where should it be taken? Um, because the Lord's Supper has been understood as a 
to communicate a new family identity around Christ. It has been rightly understood throughout church history as a corporate meal. It's not something that individuals are just supposed to like do for themselves in isolation. It is a corporate meal for the body. And this is confirmed by the fact uh, that the supper assumes a, pe- a gathering of people um, when it is mentioned. In Acts chapter 20, we read that at verse 5, uh, these went on ahead and were waiting for us, that is Paul and Luke at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. And then on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. So pause real quick. So he was there an extended period of time, but he waited for a particular to, for a particular time to go ahead and break bread. That ha, that can't be a reference to eating, okay? Because it's, there's no indication that Paul was there and he fasted along with everyone else the whole week. This is a, a almost all the commentators agree it's a reference to the supper. And what happens is he is waiting for the first day of the week when they were gathered together. When they were, verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. So the key takeaway from that little, just tiny little narrative excerpt is it wasn't something that they just, hey, Paul's here. Why don't we just kind of have a nightly Lord's Supper roundtable? This would be great. No, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was something that was seen as something specific. He was waiting for a particular time, and it was when they were gathered together. Acts 20, verse, uh, verses 5 through 7. Um, Scoop over with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. See how much of it I want to read here. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read that the Lord's Supper is done, verse 20, when you come together. That's the, that's where he, that, that's the context in which he gives this instruction about the Lord's Supper from 17 to 34 in, in, in uh, chapter 11. When you come together as a church, verse 18, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So we're going we're gonna to pause here. We'll come back. I'm going to skip over to a second. But again, it is the idea of this is something where the regular pattern is something that happens when the church comes together. And the partakers are warned against something in verse uh, 29. Uh, Actually, let's go to verse 28 because this is the examined text that preachers sometimes blow out of proportion. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What exactly does that mean? What body? What body? Well, in the context, it seems that what he is saying is we need to partake of the supper rightly. And this is someone who would not be doing so rightly. What's the exact problem there at Corinth? Let's continue on and hop back to verse 20 real quick. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? 
I will not. I will not do that. When I, so, the, 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 trying to so a lot of people try to reconstruct exactly what happened, but everyone agrees on the core details. You have people who are bringing their dinner, bringing their food, and they were eating there when they were supposed to be gathered uh, for something like a church service. And we were taking the Lord's Supper, and people are doing what should be should have been happening in their own homes before they came. They were kind of packing their little cooler and walking over to the, the big the house of a rich person, where that's where it would have happened at. And they would have probably been positioned in a certain place, and they would have had the poor people out on kind of a not a patio, but something uh, maybe like a covered patio, something like that. And this is the divisions that he is talking about, and what they should really be doing is not looking after themselves and kind of bringing their own dinner. And No, this is something where there shouldn't be division based off class, is what Paul's saying. Shouldn't be division based off class. And so when he gets to verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so drink of the cup, and so he, uh, for anyone, he, he teases that out in verse 29. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and the cup. Verse 29, for anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body. That's what it means to examine yourself. Make sure you're drinking. In the context of 1 Corinthians 11, I'm not saying there aren't further applications, but in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, what does it look like to examine yourself then? Make sure you're discerning the body. Making sure that you're not looking over there, that person who doesn't have any food, and saying, oh, they get to sit outside uh, because they're 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 poor, they're in a different class. There's divisions among you. And the question for the this particular the uh, relevant portion, I guess, directly relevant for this particular question is, how could you discern the body if you're in isolation? How can you discern the body? Like if we made certain people sit in certain parts of the church based off their class, uh, that would and you were taking the Lord's Supper, that would be a big problem. That would be, you would not want to take that, you, you would want to discern the body and say, hey, this isn't right. This is supposed to be a family meal. What are the, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it like this? Why is there division as we do this? We're not discerning uh, appropriately the body and how we should be coming together. And so that's what Paul says here. There, that's going to, that's gonna, uh, I think that principle right there of discerning the body is going to be helpful as we go down the road with some of these questions. But for now, between Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 11, 19, or 18 and 20, where when you come together and then discerning the body, how or where the Lord's Supper should be taken seems to be when the people of God are gathered together corporately. When the people of God are gathered together corporately, which of course raises the following questions. What about, but what about small groups? What about taking the Lord's Supper in small groups? I would say that because hard lines cannot be drawn, but because in the New Testament depicts the Lord's Supper as something that is a Lord's Day ordinance that was celebrated when individuals and churches gathered together and required appropriate relations and treatment among a local body, in order to do it properly. Um, I would say that midweek small groups, pilgrimage site communions, parachurch gatherings, uh, 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 the Lord's Supper at weddings, and those uh, participating in Sunday morning church digitally are not great candidates for receiving the Lord's Supper. Okay? Now, if you've done that, don't feel bad. Okay? I'm not saying anyone's sinned. All right? If you had the Lord's Supper at your wedding while everyone watched, don't, don't, please don't send me an email. I'm just saying that because the Lord's Day ordinance, is, it's it suggested that it's a Lord's Day ordinance together celebrated by the gathered body that required discerning the body appropriately. 
I'm suggesting that midweek small groups, pilgrimage site communions, parachurch, and some of y'all maybe don't, some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about when I say some of these things because you've been in some of these scenarios and some of you are like, what on earth are you talking about? Uh, uh, and those participating in Sunday morning church digitally are not great candidates for receiving the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, it would be difficult to conclusively declare something like that sinful. It just doesn't, I'm not willing to say that. I can't get there with a direct, firm, might be able to get there with a dotted line, like this is not the pattern that we see, this is not this and that, but I, I would not, I don't have the confidence, and I don't think the New Testament allows us to just say, that's sin. What I would say is it's just not, it's not what we should be doing. It's not normative. Now here's the next one that is also perhaps even more sensitive of an issue, okay? So I'm ready for people to throw their shoes and such. What about shut-ins? What about shut-ins? I have an Anglican friend. He tells me all the time he's got his little portable, he's got his portable communion kit. All right? And he takes the Lord's Supper around the people's houses. I would say that the number one reason someone who agrees with what I've said thus far, but would, but would still take bread and wine, juice, whatever, to a shut-in is a sense of charity. All right? It just feels kind. Um... Such individuals can't come to church, and so we can bring a little bit of church to them is, is the idea. Um, but I would say that not being able to take the Lord's Supper is a, just a regrettable consequence of not being able to come to church, just like not being able to gather with the body to pray or hear the preaching, perhaps, or sing together. I would say it's just part of it. And I would say that if the Lord's Supper is a community and corporate meal, then it actually can't be recreated individualistically. You notice in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, we all gather together, y'all are doing something. And y'all are calling it the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you take. That's what he says. Y'all are doing something, but it's not, not the Lord's Supper. Um, Van Ness says this well, the Reformed Baptist guy. He says, the perceived harshness from this arises from the assumption that I could bring communion to her, he's talking about a particular shut-in, if I just would. However, my point is that I cannot bring communion to her even if I tried. I cannot, it cannot be recreated apart from the gathered body, okay? And that is why the family element and the corporate element and the when you gather together, that's why I've kind of done it in this order. Because if I skip to this, I'd be like, Tyler, you're such a monster. But I'm just saying that this is, this is one of the unfortunate elements about not being able to gather with God's people because this is where that happens. And so while our sympathies are drastically different, about a shut-in, celebrating the Lord's Supper, something like that. Theologically, it's difficult to see how serving the Lord's Supper to a shut-in, theologically, not sympathetically. Theologically, it's different. It's hard to see how that's any different than serving the Lord's Supper to someone who is, you know, couldn't come to church for any other reason. They were, they were, uh, they, they, they were busy preparing to going out of town, or they were packing up their house to move or something. They just couldn't, couldn't make it. Okay, theologically, it, it, it's identical, I would say. Okay, our sympathies are very different. Okay, Whew. done with that one. Any questions? No, no questions. Oh, huh. Oh. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, well, so we did. Um, we did serve the Lord's Supper during COVID when we were get. So we took a. We took a. Uh, I don't know, like a, a did. Oh. Oh, no, 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 nope, we did not. In fact, we had, asked, we had some people ask if they could do that, and we said no. 
But when we did, when we came back with like, when we came back initially, we did do the Lord's Supper, but it was with those lame little like juice wafer uh, things. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a fan. I don't, I know Ben is not a fan of uh, the, and, and that's why I included the digital people. I, I include, I, I considered that um, a di- digital, digital church. That that was not something that had. That was something that was from the very beginning had a very had a shelf life because that was just not gathering together. Um, okay, who could administer the Lord's Supper? Only have five minutes. Who could administer the Lord's Supper? The New Testament does not say anything about who can lead or administer the supper. Not a single thing. However, at a bare minimum, because of the theology of the supper and understanding of the local church, whoever leads the supper at least must be able to properly explain the symbolism in order to make it a Christian ordinance. Symbols have to be explained to be Christian. Okay? You can't get up and baptize someone in the name of Allah, and it's a Christian baptism. Right? There's, there's, there's symbolisms communicate things, and symbols don't communicate just by themselves. Uh, someone who is administrating at least has to be able to, to distinguish it from just um, here, snack time. You know, it's not snack time. It's, there's something that makes the difference between snack time and the Lord's Supper, and it's what these things are communicating and what it is. I would say that perhaps the best argument for elders being the ideal candidates, notice I said ideal, ideal, um, outside of tradition, is that the the supper, I would suggest that one's explanation of the meal should involve or entail a fencing of the table from unbelievers and those under church discipline. And as the only individuals or officers in the church who can rightly insist on submission to their kind of ecclesi- ecclesiological instructions, when elders are present, they would seem to be the best practical candidates to do it for that reason. Because, it, because the Lord's Supper, as you explain the elements, should involve at one level or another, um, either just in terms of how you explain it or how, how you clarify it, a so-called fencing of the table, including those who are unbelievers and those who are under church discipline, saying, hey, you, and you hear me say this when I step up there, if you are here visiting, uh, you, know, you may not take, this is not for you if you are not a, uh, if you are not a believer in Christ. I think the, I think, um, an elder is the best candidate to do that. I do not think that it, an elder has to be the person uh, doing that. Okay, the New Testament simply just does not say. And so, a lot of times, it's going to come down to the practical situation, what might be communicated by who or whatever is doing it. Um, there's going to be it's going to be a very practical, uh, a very practical thing. Again, I think the elders are the ideal candidates. Or someone who could, who, who maybe in a church that's led, it has a different polity, someone who could be looked to as an elder or something like that. How often should the Lord's Supper be celebrated? Uh, but again, the New Testament says nothing explicitly about the frequency of celebration, but the picture that emerges does seem to be that the Lord's Supper was celebrated weekly. It was celebrated on the first day of the week, which was, of course, Sunday. We saw that from Acts 27. Um, you also might think, and one commentator pointed this out, I've never thought of it in my life until I read him say this. Uh, uh, he said, it's a, it's inter- you said, he said that I wonder uh, if the problems surrounding the Lord's Supper in Corinth could have possibly been as serious as they were if it was like a quarterly observance. You know, could, could the division happening in Corinth over the Lord's Supper, Supper in people's houses possibly have been something that just happened once a quarter? 
He's like, eh, I don't think so. Or even once a month. He's like, it seemed to be something that was more regular. It was a more regular problem. as more regularly occurring. That's why it ended up being such a large problem. Must we use the one bread and one cup of blessing that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 10, 16? This does seem to be the practice in the earliest church, but nothing about the practice suggests that faithfulness requires one loaf and one cup. Um, people were gathered in houses where there was one loaf of bread and there was few enough people to all kind of have a piece and all you know, drink from the same cup. In a large church, that's practically impossible. It's also important to point out that the unity in the Lord's Supper, the, the, the theology of the unity in the Lord's Supper doesn't come from taking from the same physical piece of bread. It comes from being united to Christ in the partaking with the, with the community of God's people. That's where the unity comes from. The unity does not come from everyone physically picking off the same thing or physically drinking from the same thing of wine or grape juice or whatever the case may be. Must we use real wine? Um, contrary to what you might be led to believe, or even your own preference, the New Testament places very little elements on the contents of the cup, which is actually the primary designator in the Gospels and Corinthians, not wine. Not wine. The most precise description we get is the fruit of the vine, without emphasis on the importance of whether it is fermented or not, fruit of the vine. However, it was obviously the case, obviously the case that it was celebrated with wine. That's not up for debate. Okay, that's why the Corinthian Christians were getting drunk. That's why he says that they weren't getting drunk on grape juice. But the but the but the focus seems to be the cup, and it's and it's particularly the fruit of the vine, not whether the fruit of the vine was fermented or not. Okay, you understand wine is fermented fruit of the vine, grape juice, non-fermented fruit of the vine, both fruit of the vine. Okay, um, given that wine and grape juice, again, are both fruit of the vine, it's difficult to make a case that a church should use wine or that wine has a theological advantage over grape juice. Of course, you just say, well, that's what they, that's what they did at the first, that's what they were doing in Corinth. Like, understood, this, but fruit of the vine is still fruit of the vine, Okay. Uh, must we use real wine? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Again, particularly, again, the emphasis is not even so much on wine it's, or the fruit of the vine. We hear that designation once. It is this, the cup, the cup, the cup, the cup. That's what we see emphasized, the cup. Um, okay, all right. I, I know that someone's going to, I'm going to, I need to finish this. Do we have to use bread and wine or juice or can we use other elements if we find ourselves in a position without access to them? Again, the New Testament gives no explicit direction here, um, but we might consider something like the following guideline for thinking about this challenge. By the way, not normally faced by people in the Western world. If you're going to a church, uh, you find yourself at a church that uses other elements than bread or juice or wine or something, you know, I don't care what kind of bread, I don't care if it's a cracker or something like that, then you need to go to another church because someone is doing something very odd. We do not have this problem, but if you found yourself in a place in the world where you didn't have these elements, you have to say, Number one, we don't take the Lord's Supper ever. Or number two, we take the Lord's Supper, but we, we don't do it because we can't find, we don't have Welch's and we don't have wine and we can't get bread. That's the kind of situation that I'm entertaining here. It's not a particularly Western problem. Um, again, the New Testament says nothing explicitly about this, but we might ask this question. If, I, if, I'm a, if, I'm a, if I was a pastor in a situation like this, I would be asking this question. Can these elements plausibly represent Christ's body and blood in order to preserve the symbolism of the ordinance. Can these elements plausibly represent Christ's blood and body in order to preserve the symbolism of the ordinance? 
veal, lamb, which is lamb, and edible vines, which are a thing, by the way, would seem to be better bread substitutes than peanuts, for example, given that Jesus is referred to as both the lamb and the vine. I am the vine. Uh, water colored red through any variety of methods would seem to be better wine, grape juice substitutes than regular water, given that it more obviously represents blood. I think if you're going to use different elements, this is the kind of question that you want to ask and try to answer. While holding out the possibility that you may just conclude, if you don't have these things, then you, you shouldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper until you do. Okay? Certainly reasonable minds can and do disagree on that. Well, we just don't have bread or wine. Or someone might say, well, y yes. Ah. Yeah, there, there, there you go. So it could be, again, this is where we're, I appreciate that point. This is where we are um, really just trying to lean on wisdom here and, get, and, and talk about scenarios that the New Testament does not explicitly give us uh, direction on. And so again, the, the, someone in that situation might either adopt some things that, and I, that I would say you would want them to preserve the symbolism of the meal and the elements, or someone might conclude that until we get these elements, this is just not going to be part of our corporate, uh, corporate worship in this odd context. So, all right, I went, I went like four minutes over time. Really apologize. I got through it though. I got through it. So ever we should have a clean break into the next section of the doctrines of grace. Let me pray for us and we'll uh, conclude. God, thank you so much for uh, being with us, uh, for being present among the, the gathered body. Thank you for a new identity in Christ and a new family stitched together through union with the Son of God. We pray that you would bless us as we move into our next hour of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.